0: what's up everybody welcome back to world on drugs i am your podcast host steve fury you know me baby we know each other if this is your first time listening to the podcast this is a podcast that does a deep dive into famous drug dealers and criminals all over the world that you haven't heard of and i'm not talking about griselda blanco i'm not talking about el chapo i'm talking about creeps David Ibrahim bram Asil a And this week, we got the Mungiki tribe. If you don't know about the Mungiki tribe, they are a cult in Kenya based off of Islam and African folk religions. Um, They started as a way to kind of defend uh, a minority group in Kenya, the Kikiyu. Um, And then they kind of delve into becoming a paramilitary terrorist organization who uses machetes and beheadings to get their points across. Um, were they a marginalized group that the police were attacking? Yes. Were the police attacking them because they were beheading people with machetes? Yes. So, uh, it's a great, great episode. Check it out. This week we got on, um, Jesus Trejo. Uh, if you know me at all or you follow my Instagram at all, um, you know Jesus. He is, um, one of my best friends, you know? Um, definitely one of my work best friends, you know? Um... I can't tell how much this guy means to me, he's helped me out so much in my career, so we'll just jump into a little bit about Jesus, Um, if you don't know who he is, he is a stand-up comedian, Uh, he's paid regular at the Comedy Store, he was a door guy at the Comedy Store before I was there, he has a stand-up special on Showtime called Stay at Home Son, has done The Tonight Show twice, he's done James Corden I believe twice, and he's been on Comedy Central, and he's got JFL New Faces, he's repped by my same management first time i met jesus trejo was after the first week i went to la i got on the kill tony show i crushed and i went to go do brian redband's podcast at the ice house at the time so it was a big week for me you know i got to do the store the ice house i'm a guy from sacramento never hit anything get to the ice house i'm nervous everyone's kind of talking over each other and jesus is there he's sitting next to me and we kind of just hit it off and we're laughing a bunch we're having a good time and i'm like oh this guy's pretty fucking cool I go home, I come back a couple weeks later, I go down to go hang out with a girl I'm dating at that time. Um, I guess she forgot I was coming, and she was on a date with someone else, so I just had to hang out in my car, and sleep in my car that night. And uh, that sucked, and so what I did was I went to the comedy store. And in the beginning when you go to the comedy store, it is um, intimidating. It's intimidating if you're a patron because you don't know how to get around because it's a maze. It's intimidating if you're a comedian. Um, side note on that, one of my favorite things is when comedians complain that it's not welcoming. It's like, bro, it's fucking Harvard, dog. Why would, why would it be welcoming? Nothing's welcoming. Nothing in the world's welcoming that deserves to be welcoming. This isn't fucking Chick-fil-A, dog. This is the best place in the world filled with the best comedians. Needless to say, I was there knowing no one, feeling like a fucking weirdo sitting by myself. Jesus walks by me. And he remembers me, and he didn't have to. He was a paid regular at the time, wasn't a door guy anymore. And we kind of hit it off, start chopping up a little bit. And uh, he goes, "Hey, I'll get you up on potluck on Monday." This would have been about the third Monday in a month that I was getting up a potluck. Get up on potluck again. I crush. Adam says he loves me. I think I I then start moving down. From then on, Jesus became one of my best buds. He's a blessing to have in my life. I wouldn't have a lot of this stuff in my career. I don't think many people have helped me out in my career. I honestly don't. I think I've kind of busted my ass and got most of the stuff on my own. But I would say uh, Jesus uh, helped me out for sure. From then, uh, I became a door guy. Um, and I'm, right before I became a paid regular, it was the day after the Comedy Store Christmas party. And if you know anything about that, gets a little raucous. Goes to about a... 8am if you know what I'm talking about So the next day I go up And this woman named Chelsea Skidmore Another comedian, she was a booth girl Uh, I go on stage And she just starts shitting on me I don't know why And then I go on stage and A little bit funnier than her Just destroy her, Uh, destroy her immensely Turns out my current manager Alex, god damn it cat Here's the cat Turns out Alex is in the audience And he sees me And I'm all hungover, and he likes me a lot. And um, he talks to Jesus, who's his client at the time. And Jesus not only co-signs me, um, he pushes me. And I end up getting signed by Levity, which to me is, uh, you know, it's statistically probably a top two or three company. But to me, it's number one because people at Three Arts, people at Brillstein, Uh, They don't talk to their managers or have the relationship with their managers that people do at levity. I talk to my manager maybe every day, if not at least three times a week. So from there, I start getting on other shows. My life starts getting better. And we cut to current day where now Jesus... I went to Jesus' special. I watched his special. Uh, He's done all my shows. He's honest as God one of my best friends. And uh, now he's... On his way to blowing up. Um, and I'm opening for him. All across the country. And it's a blessing to work with someone that's one of your best friends. Someone who you look up to. And someone who's really fucking cool, man. And no one has anything bad to say about the guy. He grinds his ass off. And I think that's why we get along. Because he respects the hustle and being funny. And that's something both I think we both have. So needless to say, this was a treat to have him on. Um, this one's very fact-heavy. And... I don't know, I think it's pretty good, honestly. It is one of the um, Robin ones, so if you're a fan of his, he's come back to do this one. It's pretty good. I enjoyed it. We recorded it in Tempe. Um, If you want to know more about Jesus, man, you can check out his clips on uh, YouTube or follow him on Instagram. I believe it's Jesus Trejo. Maybe comedy in there. You'll find it. He's the biggest Jesus Trejo. So last week, I was in Tempe, Arizona with Jesus, uh, and my girlfriend went out there. You know, man. How do I feel about Arizona? I feel I really like the people. I to me, Arizona, Phoenix, Tempe. I mean, it's all the same fucking place. I don't know. They want to pretend it's not. It's the same place. You're too close. You're too close, Phoenix, Arizona area, to be pretend you're different people. It's like people It's like people living in the same room and thinking that they're not brothers and sisters or something. You know, it's like no, you're together. You're the same thing. Tempe, Scottsdale, whatever. Little different cultures. But um, I really fuck with Phoenix, man. The crowds are lit. Um, people are good. Politics, a little wonky. Not my favorite thing in the world. But, you know, they make it up. You know, sometimes, you know, really just goes to show how you might not agree with people's politics. And that's probably why you shouldn't bring them up. Because the people themselves might be too cool as fuck. And they are cool as fuck. And they were great to me. And I know there's a few new listeners from there. So thank you guys. I'll always be back. Uh, that is going to be a city that. I will play the rest of my life and every time i do it i am excited to do it so good to see you guys thanks for jumping on board the podcast we're seeing the numbers raise it's pretty cool to watch this thing that i've been dumping a lot of time and money into get better oh look at all the cat hair all over my face um get better man and people are enjoying it and they're respecting it and it's getting better we're up to like a couple hundred downloads an episode, so thank you guys, thanks all the new people, um, I'm going to keep pumping these out, keep trying to get better and better, you know guys, uh, I would say comment on my clips on Instagram, you know, tell me, start talking to me about if what episodes you liked, what things you did like, what things you didn't, if you want to just DM me, feel free, I'm here for constructing criticism, I'm not necessarily going to listen to you, um, but if enough people say the same shit, I will listen to it, you know, maybe if there's different formats we're enjoying, but other than that, we're doing pretty good. Um, how was last week? Phoenix was great, man. Uh, couldn't enjoy that more. I had my last JFL, hopefully, ugh, good, don't want to jinx that. Hopefully my last JFL audition. If you don't know what JFL is, just for laughs. It's uh, the biggest comedy festival in the world. It is where um, all the comedians that you enjoy have gotten discovered. Almost every comedian that's big now has gotten this. It's like a doctorate or a, I mean, to be honest, being passed to the comedy store is way cooler and harder to do. But uh, this is something I always wanted. Um, I have done it for... This is my fourth year. Um, I've done pretty good every year. But I did kind of my old style, which is if you've seen me, you kind of see my set right now is splitting up between stories and set of punchline jokes. Bang, bang, bang. So... The last three years I did this, I've always done pretty good because set-up punchline stuff normally hits, bow, bow, observations. But that's not what these people want. So if you are a comedian listening to this uh, and you're thinking about your JFL set one day, they care about your story. That's all they care about. Make your story funny. Show who you are. Oh, but that's not the funniest thing in the world. Yeah, but it's not about being funny, guys. That's what I learned. You know what it's about? Packaging yourself so you can sell it to a network so you can get a fucking TV show that's what it's about if you want to learn more about jfl and what that is there is a great documentary about the 2018 jfl called inside jokes on amazon prime it is free it is three or four episodes i never really wanted to watch it because there's a bunch of people getting something i think i'm better than (laughs) true but you know every comedian probably feels that way so i didn't watch them but um after this audition i decided to watch him with my girlfriend so she could understand this, the importance of this uh, she's been supporting me very well what happened at the audition steve so um normally i've been having my auditions we're always at mi west side in santa monica great club it is an improv club and i've been known to bomb there a few times but i've always done pretty good there this one was at dynasty typewriter it's like fantastic you know let's keep going to venues that uh aren't built for stand-up if you don't know what dynasty typewriter is it is an old school movie theater i believe really cool setup beautiful place it's all like smoky inside the lights look good the aesthetics are on point um that being said they don't serve alcohol so you know how i feel about that i don't like to do stand-up without a beer before or two don't like to be drunk but you know two or three beers man i'm just loose i'm feeling good they didn't have that so brought a couple of road sodas for the carry bear Pounded those in the parking lot. Went to the show. Luckily, it was with um, some of my good friends, man. You know, it's really funny to see how far I've come in comedy now. Where, comedy in L.A., where when I was first getting these things, I didn't know anybody. I felt weird, awkward. I didn't belong. I've been here long enough now where they were pretty much all my friends. We had Ricardo Flanagan, very funny guy, L.A. guy. We had Mitch Burroughs, one of my besties, just had a butt baby, a baby ex-door guy, uh, Married a Waitress which is kind of blasphemous, but whatever and then I also had Chase Bernstein if you don't know who Chase Bernstein is, oh she's one of my favorite comics, really is, you know, she's got such a uh, different point of view and different voice it's really funny stuff so I go up um, fourth which is pretty good, you know, I don't know if they make the lineup in a way that they want to favor people because I've always gone last and you know if you've seen me I'm kind of dirty so or not even I am kind of dirty but I'm definitely uh... you don't want to put me up first you know what I mean I'm not a first comic I shouldn't be opening shows I mean I can with my new story bit oh I gotta remember that too the story bit about that because um, I stopped talking about that when I said the, the punching up stuff or the not punching up but the uh, shorter jokes So, I got fourth. Pretty good fucking place in the lineup. Room's already open. You can be dirty. You can be clean. You can do whatever you want in that spot. I normally had to go last every time, but I was always dirty and always hit him with energy and always hit him with punchlines, so I always did pretty good. This year, um, I went, fuck it. I'm going to do my story. If you haven't seen the recent story, it is a story about my dad getting married three times and then me wearing a ridiculous outfit that my mom made me in fifth grade. You get a six minute set on JFL. This story was six minutes. So if this bitch doesn't hit in the beginning, I'm bombing my dick off for six minutes. Luckily, if you've seen this show or you've seen this story, shit doesn't bomb, dog. It is, uh, might be the best bit I've ever written. If you want to see uh, kind of a first rendition, go to the comedy store's website or their uh, Instagram, and it's probably like the 25th pick down. It's a picture of me, it's about a six minute bit. I go there. I do the story. It, uh, I mean, I might be a little biased. I think I had the best set. I mean, that's what everyone told me. I do. I could do good. But, you know, being me, man, I've had a lot of shit going in my life not come through. Especially, you know, when I was dealing drugs when I was a kid. You can't focus on things that you hope will come true because they might come true. You can't rely on them. So I go into a lot of things thinking, I'm not going to get this. I mean, I vision, I visualize that I'm gonna get it, but I put in my head that I'm not gonna get it. That way, if I don't get it, it's like, well, this is what I planned for. So Wednesday, I got my story. I'm gonna do the story. Um, my doctor calls me. I'm not gonna talk too much about this, but gave me a really gnarly health scare. I'm kind of worried about still. So that fucked me up. I'm like, oh god, now I'm doing this story and I got this health scare. I don't know what's happening. It's make me think of a lot of weird shit. So I head to the show, whipping the new Lex. Love that car Makes me very happy um, Get there pass, Smash the car bar The road set is in the car bar Do my spot I do good I'm feeling okay man I'm like uh, Luckily my buddy Pete Lee If you don't know Pete Lee done the Tonight Show More than any other Current comic right now Hilarious guy uh, Sweet boy uh, I helped him paint His trailer mansion He has a trailer On the coast Or the cliffs of Malibu That overlooks the ocean It's one of the Most badass fucking things I've ever seen uh, Love his girlfriend Jamie He's hosting, I gotta talk to him It's just fun, you know, in the beginning when you do these things You don't know nobody, but now I know people They're my friends, so I'm doing shit with my friends And I haven't seen people in a long time Show was a little weird Because the guy named Jeff Singer He's the guy who books JFL He's been doing it for 25-30 years He has seen every comedian that matters For the last 30 years He's the guy who chooses people He's the guy Who makes the decision If you get your big break shot your big shot. You can do it without it, but it really helps. So normally, he's a French-Canadian guy. He always wears fedoras. He's in on the joke. He has like 100 fedoras. He sits in the corner. He never laughs. He watches your set. He doesn't really talk to you. He's kind of sullen because normally the guy's watching. He's doing this all year. Watching 10, 15 people a night all year and debating with his other co-producers of this thing. Who should get in this festival? But he hasn't been doing that because of the pandemic. So the guy comes in to the green room and he's the nicest guy I've ever ever met. Saying hi to me. Saying all this cool shit. Saying hi to everybody. Introducing people. Brings up the show. He's just stoked. I go up. And I fucking do really well, man. I wouldn't say it's the hardest I've ever crushed these uh, JFL auditions. Because, you know, the dirtier jokes. And the bang, 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 bang. Punchline, punchline, punchline. I can get them rolling to where people are like wheezing. But the story is very um, insightful of who I am as a person. It is. It ends on a huge laugh it's uh it's what they want i do great i come off stage my manager alex is there he texts me he came he always comes everything important that's why i would say if you can get booked if you can get anywhere man if you're thinking about going to any management company and you have a chance to get to levity because they do keep it small there man they're not like three arts where each guy's like 45 comedians under his belt these guys have a handful so if you got a chance man i couldn't suggest anything more he comes he brings a couple agents show ends i walk out front i go to talk to him agents are cool to me uh alex is cool to me they all say i was great they all say i had the best set um also man there's another one hang out after you do your spot especially if it's important because the booker of the show the booker of the festival other comedians other bookers that might be there they might want to talk to you after the show this is a job do not leave early you're not some movie star put in the fucking work man i'm getting a lot of wrinkles so i'm out there hanging out a bunch of other comedians out there i'm talking to my manager talking to these two agents jeff comes out and he's looking at me and i've done this four years this motherfucker has never talked to me once he might have said hi steven but he wasn't warm before to anyone i ever seen Dude beelines to me in front of all the agents and my manager and just starts Giving Me the nicest The nicest compliments I've ever heard anyone give me. Especially from someone that you you pray to God will give you these fucking compliments. The guy was telling me how much of a pro I am, how special, how my act was perfect. And also what's cool about this Jeff Singer guy is he remembers every one of your jokes. I don't know if it's like a mild autism thing, but he goes up and he's like, Oh, you did a whole new set. That was amazing. You're so strong. All this shit. And he's doing it in front of the agents and my manager. And I'm just staring at him. And then as he's talking to me, he kind of stops and goes, Why are you not saying anything? And I'm like, dude, I've done this for four years and... You've never said a word to me. So I'm a little bit weirded out. He starts laughing. And then he goes... He cuts the conversation with the manager, my manager Alex, and the agents. He goes, hey Steve, can I bring you over here and to give you more compliments? What? Yeah, bro, you can do that. I'll fucking burn these people. I will kill my manager in a fire for you to do this. No, I'm kidding, I wouldn't do that. So then he brings me over again and just starts laying in these compliments. So... My day went from being nervous about this JFL thing. It was straight to callbacks, too. So watch the documentary, man, if you got time. The episodes are pretty short. It's done pretty well. Not all those guys make it. I know all those comics. And you really get to realize what this thing is and how important it is. So he does that. It tells me a bunch of crazy shit. It doesn't say I'm going to get it, but to me, it seemed like he said everything before. Before hey, you're gonna get it. So after that, then I go hang out with my manager and Rachel Hall, one of the manager or one of the agents. Excuse me, I'm not even drinking. I got burps. And then the night goes well, man. I stopped worrying about the health scare, and then I just uh, that happens. Then I go to Tempe and shit gets popping. So it was a pretty good week, man. And you know Tempe, it was good because of all the fans, you guys out there. So thank you, New Tempe people. You guys made it great. Alright, let's go some of the stuff I think you should check out. Uh, Mayor of Easton. Easttown, whatever the fuck it is. On uh, HBO Max. First two episodes are a little wonky, a little boring, but the shit gets poppin'. I would highly suggest watching that. Music-wise, um, J. Cole just came out with a new album last Friday. Very good. Definitely not the most melodic of his things, but definitely bar for bar, he is fucking sp- Bitten, so that one I really enjoyed. Also, there's a song called... Um, it's by this guy named Bat Boy Blackie. Um, I'd never heard of him before. I've never heard of Bat Boy Banky. His best song right now is Wake him Up. Um, check that out. He's He has not been discovered yet. Uh, he's only He's got about 16,000 monthly listeners, but this Wake Em Up song shit slaps dog it really slaps it really it takes a turn in the middle listen to the whole thing and it's really fun you know it's one of those songs that uh i feel like kanye west and travis scott kind of like we're on the forefront of where you listen to half the song and it's one song and the beat completely changes so that one i've been banging nonstop. tv show east of mayor of easton um that's it guys um i can feel some good vibes um, they come from you fans, you guys listening to this, my parents, my friends, my families. I feel some heat coming. Oh, last week I also got to open the OR at the Comedy Store, which is kind of what the day before the uh, JFL edition. I got to open it, and which is kind of why I was like, I don't have opener energy. I mean, the the story hit, but, you know, I'm talking about condoms and doing drugs and shit like that. It's not really, you don't want to open, you don't want to eat. You know, it's like a shot of fucking tequila with no chaser, my act. It's better when you're a little drunk, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, <my laughs> that's pretty good. My act is like a shot of tequila. Uh, right off the gate when you wake up, not pretty good. What, about 1130 at night? Might be one of the best drinks you ever had. So, my set was okay. Uh, The new booker, Emily, was there. Um, I want to say this about Emily LaFour, the new booker. Look at these lineups, guys. This woman knows what she's doing. She's giving people chances, young people chances. Um, Her lineups are just as good as Adam's were. And I'm proud to have called her my friend. You know, I was friends with her when I was a door guy, and she was just an assistant to the fucking belly room. And now she's... uh, Maybe the most book one of the most important bookers in the world, and she knows what she's doing. And people fucking doubted her, and they should have never doubted her because she's done this a long time, and she's smart. And I'm so happy for her, and I'm happy she's uh, you know, she's watching my sets. Did I have the best set? No, but it just feels good that someone's watching you and cares about the fucking job. Not the last guy didn't. He was great too. I mean, he passed me. I couldn't ask for more. But I'm I think I'm gonna like Emily a little more. But I kind of didn't do great, so then I was a little worried about my JFL audition the next day. But if you're a stand-up comedian and if you're just starting, I welcome bombs. I welcome bombing. Why? Because when you get to the point where I'm at, which I think I'm pretty good and I very don't often bomb, when I just keep crushing, I don't think I'm going to crush my next set. I think someone's got to pay the piper soon. You know, there's always just one that doesn't go well. So luckily, my set at the comedy store, I mean, I don't really bomb because I'm pretty good. But I, don't, I didn't go that well. So to me, it was a bomb. So I got the bomb out of the way, got the restart of the juju clock, and it all worked out on JFL. Next week, we got a Dr. Joe Hoffswell's double part banger, folks. Ooh. I'm doing the 18th Street Gang. You heard me. Yeah, that one's going to be pretty fun, man. Um, We decided to do with Dr. Joe was um, take his stuff, spread it out. He's going to do once a month. I'm going to get a couple other people to do the shorter ones. He's going to do double parters once a month and allow me to start getting ahead of podcasts. And this one's 18th Street Gang. We go into different factions, how they started. This is a local L.A. gang, so I could get shot, to be honest with you, but... um, worth it so once again guys this is the mungiki tribe cult kind of ah fucked with religion so a a minority trying to trying to save themselves from discrimination and 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 attacks from other people that spun out of control and just real psycho shit so it's a really good episode once again shout out to robin fitch mccullough the researcher he does a good job Happy to have him on board. He's making a, I got two from him, some two good ones coming up. A little short though, so I'm not sure what I'm going to do about those. Might start doing a Patreon. You know, these numbers are getting to the couple hundreds that maybe a couple people want an extra two episodes a month. And I'm also getting some merch made. Um, It's going to be the World of Drugs logo with my name on it on a black t-shirt on the front. Start selling them at shows. So if you guys want one of those, keep an eye out. Be fun to support me. 25 bucks, probably a piece, 40 for two. I don't know why you'd want two, but maybe you do. So, guys, thank you very much. I love you. Thanks for hanging out on the podcast. Thanks for making this thing a little community. Please DM me what you do, what you don't like. Let's get this thing better. Let's whittle it down. We're still only 13, 14 episodes in, and it's finally getting some heat. I feel some heat. Thank you, guys. Once again, this is Jesus Trejo in the Mungiki, Kenyan tribe, cult. See you guys soon, buddy. Hey, Zeus Trejo, good to see you, buddy. What's up, man? Good to see you. We yeah. here in Tempe, Arizona, baby. It was hard to get you, you know. Oh, well,
1: come on, man. Well. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for for letting me come on. Uh, Yeah, this is exciting stuff,
0: dude. Yeah, we've been having a good time in Tempe the whole time. Yeah, man,
1: you've been crushing the shows, man. Just, uh, I mean,
0: complete, like, slaughter, making me work up there. Well, I'm, only I'm cr- having a great time. I'm only crushing because you're selling them out. We're getting 500 people on a fucking Thursday. <laughs>
1: It's been fun, man. It's been cool. It's not as hot as I thought it was going to be. Yes.
0: I mean, it was hot as fuck Thursday, and I was like, this is going to be a rough time. But now it's 80 with, like, a light breeze. Yeah, it's, it's making cool. me It's making me be like, oh, this place isn't that bad. <laughs> and then, like, three days from now, it's 400 degrees. So we're going to do uh, – this one's pretty great. Uh, this We got with one of my best uh, researchers, Robin. He's an ex-military guy. Um, he does really in-depth stuff, and this one's pretty cool. So this is all about the Mungiki. It okay. is a uh, – well, you know, like a lot of things, started with white people ruining something. And then <laughs> from there, they grew into an organi- they were, a Quick synopsis, they, white people, you know, the apartheid stuff and took over their country. And then when they left, it was a one-party system. These guys tried to go back to their home roots and find their culture after 120 years of occup- occupation. And okay. then through a mix of African tribal religions and Islam, they uh, slowly lose their fucking minds um, and go into cannibalism, go into human sacrifices. Oh, man. And their favorite means of attacking people is machete. Ooh. So the roaming groups of guys that are machetes. That's brutal. Yeah, it's going to be pretty brutal. We don't get too brutal. I mean, once we get into the cases at the end, you see a little bit more. It's, we could have gotten a little more gory. But also, though, you know... They also get so bad because it's like a weird religion that people are oppressing. So then mm-hmm. we'll just get into it. We'll start it right here. Okay. Straight to the timeline, the background to the cults and organized crime in Kenya. 1840s, European missionaries begin to explore and proselytize what is now Kenya. The region is ostensibly under control of the Arab and Muslim Sultanate of Zanzibar. In reality, the Kikuya and other tribes are independent.
1: I have to say you're you're pronouncing
0: those words like great. I was I, like, "Ooh, I would have a hard time." <laughs> I mean, honestly, some of the English words in this one, the prostalitis was got me more than uh, I've lo- luckily written a lot of this and read it all and uh that's good. I if if I if I had to read this, it, it
1: would be a long episode. lie Yeah, that one.
0: <laughs> Some of my readers, I think Robin snuck in a few words in here. I'm like, I've never even heard this in English. I think he's trying to fuck with you. Yeah, 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 he yeah, knows yeah. I'm trying to <laughs> read this. He knows I got a, a couple beers in me. Um, so then they go to 1871, so about 30 years from there. The French Empire is defeated by an alliance of German states. Desperate German states unite into the German Empire. Both France and Germany advocate for new colonial ventures in Africa. Uh, has anyone heard about slavery coming there? That's that's probably Archie was already there at that time, but that's kind of what happens there. In about 1882, a nationalist revolution threatens to close the Suez Canal in two European trade. Great Britain intervenes and occupies the country. France, Belgium, Germany, and other European countries rapidly step up their own colonial enterprises. Mm. Got a feeling this isn't going to end well. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little... Yes. We'll 1885, yeah. the Berlin Conference regulates trade, exploration, and military ventures in Africa. The entire continent is effectively divided amongst European powers, which is nice because it's Africa, not Europe. The region of modern Kenya is allotted to the British East African Association. Wow. How fucked is that, man? Someone just comes into your house and starts dividing it amongst your neighbors.
1: It's like, no, the whole thing is my house, <laughs> and they're telling you what wing of the house you own. Like, not no. even you don't
0: even get. Oh, they're like, no, 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 it's not your house. It's actually your neighbor's houses. You're gonna live here, or we're gonna move you somewhere, and it's gonna be a lot worse. That's so terrible. Here's a question: Has anything ever started well with the words European powers?
1: No, U- a European, uh, maybe European soccer.
0: Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. The European power, but now they're trying to get that super league, which could be.
1: Oh yeah, I heard about that. I'm yeah. not a soccer guy, but I heard about that. Is like that. Uh, yeah, that's not good.
0: Essentially, what they're doing there is they're going to take all the biggest teams and put them in one league. But the reason that the other teams help in the smaller leagues help is because they share the revenue with the poor teams. So people that are in like you know the Oakland A's of the Premier League mm-hmm. still get to have money and fans because the big guys get the contracts. But if they do that, then everyone's going to die, and there's only going to be like 30 teams not cool bro so yeah even in that example not good yeah maybe like a sausage factory like you know like once a year (laughs) all the european powers come together for a bratsworth battle oh man what about european cars are you a fan of european cars that's cool
1: yeah but they just always break down they do they oil leak like hell
0: yeah something goes wrong and it's super expensive like my whole thing—I was searching for a car for like six months. I just got a car, a Lexus. And my thing, nice. yeah, pretty. It's it's old, but it's Why, got.
1: Why did you say Lexus like under your breath? You got to say Lexus.
0: I know. <laughs> I just feel embarrassed. I got a new car, Lexus. And no,
1: dude, you work hard.
0: Yeah, I did work hard. It is. It is everything I ever wanted. But when I when the people, <laughs> it's weird. To, like I, now I wash it every day. And like my old car, I had this old Corolla that had like dandruff as its paint job
1: i will say this is like when when you ask for something be very specific because as a kid i always wanted a foreign car like i'm gonna i'm gonna push foreign cars i do drive a toyota yaris you know <laughs> so it's like i gotta be very specific i should have been like
0: bentley or, you know it's it's like that one movie bedazzled you ever seen that one with brendan frazier where he meets uh elizabeth hurley and she is i think that's the movie and she's the devil and he asks <laughs> for like he's like i wish i was a basketball player and then he's like it's the cut to the game and he's dunking on everybody and then the he has the he has the interview <laughs> after and he takes off his pants he's got like a tiny baby penis oh no and then yeah. he has to just keep doing that be specific uh, mm-hmm. if nothing
1: else from this podcast be very yeah. specific in your wishes if you
0: meet a genie no he's going to try and trick you <laughs> 1888 the british east africa company is formed to administer parts of east africa 1902, much of the variant highlands of Kenya are allocated to white settlers and their allies. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Disposed of their grazing land, the Kikuya move into British controlled estates or into the cities. Mm. That's not good.
1: So they st- j- just start just moving through the cities. They're yeah, taking they, over everything.
0: Well, no, what they're doing, so what happened is the British people are stealing the farmlands mm. and then they're pushing the native people, the Kikuya into cities to create slums. I don't know if they know it's going to actively create slums, but mm-hmm. it's going to create slums.
1: So their motivation to take over like the, the, the fields and stuff because it generates money, right? Mm-hmm. Right.
0: For farming and then, I guess, later for diamonds and gold and shit like that. Mm-hmm. So they're pretty much creating a huge slum that's going to mm, be a problem for the rest of Africa's history up until this date. 1905, the capital was moved from Mombasa to Nairobi. 1920, British East Africa is made a crown colony. Administration passes from corporate hands to that of the British government. Mm -hmm. 1944, Kenya-Africa Study Union is formed. They advocate for Kenyan independence from Great Britain. That's nice. That was in 1944. Nice. There's actually a couple things that these guys, uh, Africa kind of does with these large studies that really change the way their government happens we'll see later and all this other stuff so it's kind of interesting I, I feel like Americans if there's a study if it just doesn't go with what you want you're like no that's a fake study Mm. You know, so the study, they, they kind of looked at
1: historically what they were doing, and then if it doesn't work, they reassess. Yeah. They flight correct, essentially.
0: And they're Well, they're going to try to do that in the 40s. Mm. It's still got a little while. 1952 to 1960, the Mau Mau revolt occurs. A nationalist government guerrilla movement attacks British interests in Kenya. Though they are militarily defeated, Britain grants many concessions to both the Mau Mau and the wider Kikuyu ethnic group and nationalist movements. So this is one where they... Uh, fought back but they like fought back kind of like from what i read you know i do do a decent amount of studying in this it was kind of like uh tribal guys fighting british soldiers with guns so like guys were so it's with already cowhide. an uneven yes uh advantage there but these guys knew they were gonna lose but they had to fight for the land and what was happening that they kind of just like
1: there's something really cool about that right is like even though you know you're gonna lose a fight it's like you got to stand up for yourself you're like I'm, I'm gonna go out there is like I don't know if you've ever been in that situation but sometimes where you knuckle up I am the guy who knows how to fight the least amount ever <laughs> but it's like sometimes it's like all I need to do is ball up my fist and just throw throw hands you yeah. know and uh, if I don't land anything that's okay but I I, I need to step up right now
0: yeah because I mean like they always say you when you step up it teaches people to skip Stop stepping down on you, Mm -hmm. and you know, for them, it could have been so bad that they're like, "I would rather die than lose." And also, you know, someone comes in, they take over your land, they take over your culture, they take over something. Yeah,
1: it's like the last straw. It's like you have to do something, and and
0: yeah, kudos to them.
1: I mean, I mean, that's like great pride in 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 themselves for sure.
0: So, about three years later, in 1963, Kenya is granted independence from the British Empire. The Kenyan African National Union represents the kiyuku tribe forms the ruling government
1: so that's the main one huh that's
0: the main one so this is the problem though which we're going to talk about in the next one 1964 kenya becomes a republic leaving the british empire the kenyan african national union dominates the government effectively making kenya a one-party state exactly never good
1: that, that that's never good it's like even when i went to college like they would talk about like I went to school for business, and all the case studies were like when when there is no like, yeah, yeah when there's no like, opposition. options yeah. or no options in in like. Like monopolies are bad. That's it uh, uh, goes without saying. But just to have the option of of having another choice, like that's important in both business and and politics. It's like to be fed only one thing. It's like with absolute power. Um, Absolute power comes absolute uh,
0: responsibility, or something like that, or corruption. Spider-Man one. Oh, corruption. Probably corruption more. Yeah. Also, like. uh, There's no one there to check you. you Yeah, there's no one to check you, so it's just like, oh, you don't like this? Well, this is what you're getting because there's nothing else you can do about it.
1: There's like a Spanish saying that says the mouth is uh, is what dictates. It's like when in that position, it's like whatever the powers to be say is like that's what goes, and you can't argue it.
0: So this is so Britain essentially went to another country, stole their shit, destabilized their government and infrastructure, and left them high and dry for a one-party government. So for 120 years, they fucked their shit up and then left them. I feel like that's kind of like, you know, when you're in a bad relationship, or like when a kid gets emancipated from their parents, Mm -hmm. and it's like it's good that you got out of there, or definitely the kids because your parents were psychos. But now you've had no training, you've been probably put in slums and have no idea. So more often than not, might not work out. Yeah, you're Great. not
1: equipped to kinda hit the real world or or in, yeah. Yeah, you're not prepared because you've been deprived of XYZ.
0: Yeah, and I'm gonna, I don't know this for sure, but I don't think in the nineteen forties the British people were putting a lot of Kenyans into government so that they can learn from them. Right. So from the nineteen sixties to the nineteen eighties, Kenya experiences a major population boom, leading to intense urban crowding, unemployment, and conflict over land rights. So we're going to go to another timeline here, and then we're going to go into uh, the overview. Okay. Timeline, 1980s or early 1990s, the Mungiki organization em- emerges amongst the Kikuyu people of Kenya. Beginning as a loose organization advocating for the r- return to what they perceived as traditional Kikuyu and Bantu values, they soon come into conflict with other ethnic groups, chiefly the Masai and the Kalenjin. So my pronouncing might not be perfect, but I did look these up. So I'm trying Better pronunciation Than I would have done Yeah especially when They're back to back It's like I can kind of I can kind of get it But so in the mid 90s Pattering itself Off the Mau Mau rebels The Mungiki leaders Move their operations To the slums of Nairobi They organize themselves In military Militarily into cells And platoons And take over The Nairobi Taxi industry Okay So essentially So what does that mean? So these guys go into the slums. I mean, a lot of times when you want to get a huge revolution, you go and get the poorest people because there's normally mm. more of them, the morally more disenfranchised, right. rich people don't want to change the status quo.
1: Right. It almost reminds me of like the Pol Pot, like in yes. Cambodia, where they go after the intellectuals and, and anyone that, you know, what's crazy. I even read this before where it's like they went after anyone who would wear glasses because yep. it was a sign of. Intelligence, intelligence. you know, so it's like when you get rid of the free thinkers, now you have the people here at the bottom who's like you can one can argue you can easily influence because they know no better.
0: Yeah. And and they're the guys that you're promising things and they're like, I want to get better. A funny thing about Pol Pot, what really fucked him up was that since he got rid of all the teachers and all the smart people Mm -hmm. and anything like that, he hated uh, sparrows. A lot. Really? Yeah, he hated sparrows a lot. And everyone's a farmer, so he goes like, if you see a sparrow, kill a sparrow. But the problem is the sparrow eats the fucking bugs that eat the plants. So there was an infestation and the crop went to... And everyone, that's when everyone started dying. And people needed to flee the land. Yeah, people needed to flee, people needed to eat. And he had no food for anybody, even though he was the guy who was championing the fucking farmers. Right. (laughs) it's just like, that's why you got to have a little intelligence. Smart people are not the enemy. The people you killed off would have told
1: you to leave the sparrows alone.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who ever hated a sparrow, too? Such a weird thing to do. I'd be like, spiders, for sure. Let's get rid of them. (laughs) Bees, maybe. So the taxi thing is also, so actually what they do a little bit later, which is even, I'll even bring it up now. So they take over taxis, and then they take over bathrooms. So most Ooh. people's this, you know, this is like the slums of fucking Africa. This isn't like that's, that's, a barrio. This is like you, people don't have bathrooms in their houses. So they have a guy with like a mach- machine gun or machete sitting outside the bathroom. Every time someone has to go poop, they got to pay this guy. And now anytime you want to go somewhere, you got to pay this guy in the taxi because not everyone mm. has cars there. So they start taking over everything. I, I love
1: how you said it'cause I'm like I get that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I get that. Uh, yeah, but imagine Im- Im- imagine that brainstorming session that leads up to this decision. You're like, what do people do the most? Everyone, no matter where you are in the hierarchy of a nation, a family, uh, of the land, you have to go to the restroom. So once you start controlling that, it's like, that's terrible. I mean, that's it's kind of
0: what, like... Not going to sound too crazy here. What Nestle is doing in America, they're buying up all of our water wells. If you look at all Are the large, really? yes, yeah, they bought like multiples of them. That's why, if you really look at why California is going through these droughts, it's because they can Nestle bought a lot of the, the water. And if you look at when they started buying our shit and you look at when the droughts happen, maybe we get less rain than we used to, but there's a large, um, I don't know. coalition's not the word, but coincidence between the two of them buying all of our water, and now we're everything catches on fire.
1: That's very interesting.
0: Yeah, because well, Nestle's fucking evil, but can keep you talking.
1: Yeah, no. That I've I've, I've had uh, case studies in college that we did in like my last semester of of school, and it was Nestle. You know them them trying to do like, um, I don't remember the full details, but basically they would do like baby formula and they would send it off to third world countries, and there was like a kind of like a, a, a thing that went wrong, so it's like, yeah, I didn't know they were evil, but yeah, I, I, I evil, knew they, would, they, they had a lot of errors in their operation that resulted in catastrophic mm-hmm. um, results. Poor yeah. Shit.
0: yeah, I mean, I mean, if you think in your head, I want to control the water or bathrooms, that to me is inherently evil. That's like a super villain. That's how a supervillain thinks. Because if you think medicine and education should be a human right right you know what no one can fucking argue that water and pooping should be the
1: yeah yeah it's like um you know having the whole thing of like yeah it's like once you start controlling you know people's restroom behavior like, where does it stop?
0: Is it is it blinking? Is it breathing? <laughs> yeah. It's like, where does it stop? You can, I mean, th- what else can be stopped other than the fucking bathroom? But that's going to come up in a second. Okay. So, quick little overview, because, you know, t- timeline gets a little uh, confusing. We're going to go this one from the 1980s, 1996. Some of the mystery surrounding the Mungiki is tied to their origins, which remain obscured by both the secrecy of the group and the mythology it has created. Originally formed as a sef- self-defense militia for the Kikuya, the ethnic group that makes up 17... Percent of Kenya's population, they first started engaging. That was a burp. Sorry, guys, I drink beer. They've heard me burp a bunch of times on this broadcast. They engaged first in cattle rustling and racketeering against the rivals, specifically the Maasai. The Maasai had been selected by the British as one of the martial races um that were accepted in colonial Kenya society and had championed ethnic minorities like the Maasai against the large Kikuyu population. Wow.
1: So, 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 let me ask you this: I'm, I'm, I'm not very bright. So, what is what does martial races mean? Acceptable. Oh, really?
0: So, like, they were like, you know, I mean, it's Kenya. I'm pretty sure everyone's the same other than, you know, different cultural vibes okay. and stuff. Okay. So they they what the British people did is they went to the Masai, and they essentially was like, you know, I'm, this might get me in trouble, but you know how America used to have house slaves and field slaves, and the house oh, slaves were wow. ranked higher than the other ones Yeah. so that they could control everything like that. Wow. So that's that's what they did. So now the Kikuya are pretty butter- I mean, Not butter That's a little low to say But they're mad at these guys Yeah And these guys think they're better than them From what I'm reading I'm not Kenyan But this is the stuff that I'm read From making this thing And him writing it So It's also good to see the British come up again You know Just helping out like <laughs> Throwing a wrench in the society of these people My goodness With their origins within the Kikuya, They chose the Mau Mau as their ideological model Anti-colonial, anti-imperialist, anti-Western, and extremely African nationalist, the Mau Mau fought the British Empire in Kenya throughout the 1950s. So, essentially, right here, uh, these are the, the, uh, um, are, are basing their shit, what they're going to do off the Mau Mau, which, if you really look at it, and, you know, these kind of, I mean, it's kind of...
1: They're being inspired, would you say? Yeah, they're being inspired by that. Okay.
0: But, you know, a lot of times, when any time you go too nationalist... That's I mean that's what happened with like Hitler's people. They're like, yo, stop c- stop letting everyone you know make Germans seem bad because of World War One. We're good people. We're doing this stuff, and then when you do this shit, it kind of spins out of control. Mm. So like, they're all they were saying is, we don't want imperialists here. We don't want Westerners here, and we want to be more African and get back to our culture. And the chick gets pretty rough. Though they were ultimately defeated in a long and brutal war in which both sides were accused of a myriad of atrocities, the Mau Mau became the heroes of the post-colonial era. The Munguiki claimed that they were their heirs and successors of the Mau Mau. And besides protecting their own Kikuyu ethnic traditions and interests, they advocated for a return to tradition for the entire country. Which, you know, a lot of these things to me, if I'm reading this right now, and if I'm a Kenyan, I'm going, I like that. I like that. I like that we I want to know my culture that has been taken from me. I want to go right. get rid of these guys who are pitting me against the Maasai. I want to do all this shit. I want to get rid of British imperialism for the last 120 years. Would you say that they understand the
1: conflict that's happening against the uh, Maasai or, or is it just kind of like a, in, a like a thing that's uh, like a conflict that's been inflicted on them and they just kind of accepted it? Cuz what's the time span here? This is like uh, 120 almost in
0: 20 years yeah 120 years
1: yeah 120 years so at some point it's like the conflict is diluted it's almost like a family conflict it's yeah. like why doesn't my mom talk to my aunt yeah we we kind of forgot what why that is but we just don't do it yeah we just don't talk about <laughs> yeah. it i don't ask mom and i i just don't
0: yeah and plus if you know your aunt thought she was better than you for 120 years because your dad told her that or her grandpa told her it was you might have some fucking yeah it's a beef. it's super deep-rooted Like the Mau Mau to gain support for their endeavors, they moved from the rural farming country of the Kenya into the heavily populated slums of Nairobi. Through the religion and culture they preached became more complex. They advocated their own secret religion that blended folk beliefs with Islam organized himself into military cells and created a litany of oaths and mottos for its members i need to have one of those cough buttons they have on radio but beer burps
1: yeah beer burps yeah. You're, you're gonna be the let it be documented on this uh podcast that he is, is, is like the new version of it like there's radio now there's podcast there was a cough button now there's a
0: burp button beer burp button yeah beer burp button.
1: <laughs> that's you right here steve fury ladies and right
0: gentlemen Re- revolutionizing podcast game <laughs> with beer burp buttons They rapidly begin to supplant their cultural activities with criminal ones. Both British imperialism, living in the slums, poor people, military, oaths, Islam, and folk beliefs. I don't see how this went wrong. Seems like a recipe for something peaceful and wonderful. That's a little joke I wrote. Sarcasm. The late 1990s. So this is a cool one. A lot of these that we do, we go pretty far back. These guys, I mean, these guys were butt-fucking-crazy in the 2000s. But right now, they're just getting steam. You know, it's a nationalist movement. People want to get back to who they were. Right before the 2000s, nineties, nineteen nineties, late nineties, the Mungiki move into other industri- industri- industries such as rubbish collection, waste management, and construction. They soon dominate criminal racketeering in Nairobi. Public toilets are occupied in the Mungiki. Charge for their use. Oh man, you know it's honestly, and I keep saying this every time I do this podcast. Waste management in every company is in other every country is normally run by criminals. In America, it was the uh, mafia back in the 90s throughout everything. The Mm -hmm. Yakuza are in Japan. These guys are here. And I think it's because people, like these guys, just how you said, they think, what do people always need? They need a ride, they need to take a shit, and they need to get rid of their trash.
1: Yeah, because, like, like when I was in college, that was like the big, like, motif, right? They said it's like, what is the big what is the big thing that people look for in business, right? It's a repeat business, something that they could get addicted to. Hence, um, Starbucks. Yeah. Right. Starbucks is selling a experience. Uh, it's, it's coffee. It's something that everyone is conditioned to think that they need. Mm -hmm. And everyone be like, yeah, I, I, I need some caffeine to get me through the day. So it's something that's like a, like a repeat thing. So it's like, even when you look at like somebody like warren buffett it's like the the business models that he's go he goes after are very unique right but in turn on the other side of that token it's like there's people different than a warren buffett that go what do people need on a daily basis it's like coffee it's like gas it's like
0: well i think that what is there's a business saying where it's um death sleep and something else, are the three businesses that will never go out of business. So if you have like a funeral home or something like that, that'll always work.
1: Or the pharmaceutical business. There is no seasons in in the pharmaceutical business or in the hospital business. There will always be people that are sick. There will always be people like uh, like the the school system. There will always be kids in school. You know they. So there's certain things that are almost like constants in life.
0: You know what I mean? um you know i just thought of right now if what? nestle does buy all the water they could start charging us for pooping and peeing if our toilets are based still water-based
1: well i mean coffee
0: makes you go yeah. number <laughs> two so, so yeah both technically they're already ahead yeah. of it you but know they buy keurig we're fucked all right a timeline again now we're going to late 90s to the 2000 the mungiki in power the Mungiki support in late 1990s supports candidates from the Kenyan African National Union Party through street violence and financial support. In exchange, they're given protection by the government as well as financial and logistical support. Mm. 2002, Mungiki street violence against rival taxi drivers kills 50 in the lead up to the 2002 elections. Oh, man. You can't shit. You can't get out. You can't get out of your little area because of taxes. Also, imagine like taxi drivers being gangsters. That would fucking suck. I mean, they are kind of, like, back in the day, taxi drivers were kind of gangsters. They're kind of assholes. They had all the power. Right. But but even,
1: like, think of, a think of like, the whole ride share thing as we know it now. That's still scary. Yeah. Now, imagine back then where there was no glimpse of regulation.
0: Or, like, yeah. you get in a ride share and the guy in the front seat just has his machete. You're like, uh, I guess I got to keep on this mask. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's that's tough. Also, taxi drivers being gangsters—you're just chilling. You see a checkered cab roll through, and everyone ducks like Ricky from Boys in the Hood.
1: People must have had big calves back then. It's like
0: I'll walk. <laughs> it's like I'm not taking a taxi. <laughs> the tax me,
1: like the taxi keeps uh, uh, passing me by. I keep flagging it down. No, that's for your benefit. Yeah, he's helping you. That's up. a that, that's a blessing in disguise.
0: December. 27 2003 the kenyan african national union is defeated in the first free elections held since 1963 the winners the rainbow coalition bans the mungiki uh i feel like if that name the rainbow coalition too is like you know when you're hiding something really dirty like it's like the america's free speech coalition and it's actually like you know the oh. internet trying to censor you and shit
1: oh i see what you're saying they're kind of doing their sugar it's too positive yeah, yeah.
0: So this one overview We're already kicking ass right here uh, The overview Early history and Mungiki Rise to power 1996-2002 The group came to public prominence With the sudden taker Of the taxicab business In Nairobi mm. Taxi cabs Or as they're called matatu, matatu, Matatu Matatu Were of key economic And cultural significance In the slums Throughout 1996 A deliberate campaign Was undertaken To control the taxi companies okay. Either by forcing Independent owners To pay off the Mungiki or through violence in which taxi cab drivers were driven out of Nairobi. By the end of the 90s, such violence had extended into control of municipal waste and public restrooms in which the Mungiki enforcers charged patrons for their use.
1: So that leads me to believe that not everyone was on board with, like not all taxi drivers were on board with this situation. So any uh, good faith taxi drivers that wanted to feed their family, like, we got to get out of here. This is not going to be a lucrative business. Like, they must have been robbed left and right, anyone
0: who wasn't a part of the the gig. Yeah, I mean. Man. It just sounds terrible. Um, Here we go. Okay, hey, Seuss, you want to take a hostile takeover of Long Beach. Okay. These guys started with toilets. I'm guessing most places didn't have their own toilets. What are you taking over in Long Beach to get a strong hold on the base of Long Beach society? I'll go first so you can think. Me with Sacramento, what's the backbone of Sacramento? Beer. I'm going to every brewery in Sacramento. I'm sitting on the big-ass dudes I'm with 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 <laughs> flannel, and I'm okay. charging someone every time they order a cider, a double IPA. Papa Fury gets a cut.
1: Ooh, that's a good one. I mean, if I'm going to do a, a takeover of Long Beach, what am I charging for? Uh, I'm going to go with um, right now I would do coffee. There's a yeah. lot of coffee shops on every corner. Uh, a lot of boutique roasters and that kind of thing. Uh yeah, coffee is big business. You know, going back to what I said earlier on Starbucks, but you know, when you have mom and pop you know, roasters, you know, people take pride in the locally sourced mm-hmm. and roasted, you know, mom and pop business. So it's like yeah, coffee is a big business. I think especially I Long that.
0: Beach, I feel like they uh, have a very uh whatever the word nationalist idea for long beach would be it's like they want to support their own and do their yeah because it's, it's
1: part of a big metropolitan area so it's like it's part of technically la county but it's its own thing 100 yeah, and long beach is basically a scaled down version like to scale it's a like you know one third of what la county would be so it's like they're kind of doing their own thing it's like we're part of la but not really we're our own thing so yeah coffee food probably yeah it's
0: like I it, like that too. Like maybe like you sit out front of them and you charge someone like they're going into the club. It's like a five dollar entrance fee to go into the coffee place. You
1: know what it is? As as you're saying that, this comes to me like when you go to a casino in California, they charge you like fifty cents a hand, like for a blackjack table. Do you know this? No. Yeah. So if you go to like a like in Southern California, you can't go into a card house because there's if you notice if all the locals yeah they're
0: weird little card houses yeah
1: just card houses. There's uh-huh. no slot machines. And the card tables, you have to go there and you have to pay a 50 cent like thing every hand. So that kind of like bites into your uh, profit margin if you're playing a game of 21, you know, a blackjack. Especially jack. if I'm
0: doing dollar to five dollar hands.
1: Yeah, you're doing five dollar hands and every, every like every time it's 50 cents, it's like there's a, there's a tax being placed on it. So I, I feel like if people were doing the thing with the bathrooms... Like if I was to charge people to eat, let's just do it on food. Any restaurant there's like a like a tax that would be the equivalent. You just get it on the front end as opposed to no pun intended back end.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess the government's doing this with taxes. It's just taxing shit for people. But now they're well, taxing back. Right. Yeah. The rise of the Mungiki came during the last years of the Kenyan African National Union government, the post-colonial party. That had ruled the country since 1963 by controlling local election sites, threatening rivals and donating heavily to the K.A.N.U. The Mungiki had gained status as an untouchable organization outside the law with protection from within the nationalist government. The Mungiki not only continued to pursue criminal racketeering enterprises, but publicly attacked cultural opponents in 2000 the Mungiki began to draw attention from wider armed audiences regionally and globally as they started to attack women as seen as being too western as well as christian organizations and freemasons so we're going to go a little bit more into that later and start going through what they do but um
1: so the, so there's just a lot of turmoil like financially right it's like the 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 businesses it's what's really like
0: dictating the 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 conflict here, right? Well, I mean, they're also in the slums of South Africa. Yeah. Like, that's, like, a rough place that— fit, I mean, you know, they're like, you know, if you don't eat a sandwich, are like, some kid in Africa would want to eat this. These are the people that they're taking over and running shit over, and then the richer people that they're like, well, we don't really care what you're doing over there. Years Just ago, like, I over.
1: remember reading this book about, like, uh, it was a third-world country where— I- like, I forget the exact details, but uh, basically they were talking about the Grameen Bank mm-hmm. and they were doing micro lending to empower th- people in third world. countries. Yeah, I heard to- about that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, uh, uh, keep going. Yeah. The micro lending is like to empower people. And it's like it's such a, you know, opposite side of this token. But it's like you could just see how somebody who has a full understanding could just negative negatively impact. A country uh, a, a regional area and it's just like this is terrible so it's like yeah it's like the opposite of what the grameen bank was doing yeah. you know they're empowering people on micro lending to get like a cell phone that they could use as a business hey you want to call your family you know you pay x amount a fraction of a penny to make a phone call and they could you know somebody could come out of poverty that way
0: yeah, yeah. instead of uh giving them money they're charging them money yeah Though it would not be revealed until later, the early 2000s saw high levels of cooperation between the KANU members and the Mungiki. the loan or theft of 10 military land rovers to the Mungiki by armed forces with the highest level of direct coordination on the part of the government through the through the mungiki were often publicly chided for their excesses they were seen as a useful political ally both due to the financial and criminal connections to the Nairobi sun slums Mm -hmm. as well as their role as a militia in the defense of the country's most populous ethnic group so that's i see that a lot of times too like a couple weeks ago when we did the bamboo union in taiwan so what these guys did is they started this gang in taiwan okay called the bamboo union and it started to get so powerful that one of these kind of like b-level political groups kind of hired them out and those guys helped them get elected and then once this political group got in power they used this gang as somewhat of a paramilitary thing so then they started using these guys to take hits out on other people and start giving them protections and I mean kind of what the u.s does with really big drug dealers you know what i mean they start funneling in cocaine like the cia did or they're protecting the highest guys so that they get the guys underneath them really yeah that's what we do some pretty crazy shit timeline mungiki as a banned organization late 2002 following the ban of the mungiki the police begin to crack down on the mungiki relying heavily on the extra judicial measures over the next five years, it is estimated that 8,000 people are killed or tortured during police operations against the Mungiki. An additional 4,000 are believed to have gone missing or have been displaced during the purges. So, number one, n- Purge, never a good. Never no. good name.
1: Yeah, no, it, it doesn't sound healthy, sounds painful.
0: So Not that good. So what happens kind of here is, like, the Mungiki are doing crazy shit. They're also kind of seen as a cult. They're also attacking people. They're also kind of... Taking control of poor people, but the police now go crazy on these guys, um, and it kind of it kind of leads to the Mungiki attacking the police and the police attacking the Mungiki.
1: That's always such a bummer, right? It's like people always want to take control of the poor people. It's like they already have nothing, yep. And now you're controlling their literally their existence. It's like that 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 to me always weighs heavy on my heart when you hear of these situations. It's like. They have nothing. Like, what What can you possibly take from them? It's like they're everything, which is their freedom.
0: Well, yeah. Well, And they're also easier to... Rich people have money. Burt button. Burt uh, button. Rich people have money to protect themselves. So these guys don't have money to protect themselves. They're just easy targets. And then rich people don't care about what's Not happening to poor money, people. Not money, but it's like,
1: you know, people with money have the resources to get an education, so they don't even understand what's going on. It's, it's you know... Above their heads, and it's yeah, it just yeah. I have I have a I have a soft spot in my heart for stuff like that when people are not equipped to understand and they were taken advantage of. Like that sucks.
0: Yeah, and who knows who knows what kind of propaganda these poor people are getting right. fed too? Where they like that's think a great point. Like, might be good, or they think the police might be good, but in the end, they're just getting fed disinformation. That,
1: that's a great point because it's like like people in that situation they're they're looking to be fed some kind of information or or outlook on things. And when they're fed biased information like that's even more like heart sinking.
0: Yeah, I mean, how would they even know? That's a great point. Displaced during purges. Isn't that the easiest and nicest way to say mass murdered? It's like, huh? no, 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 I didn't sell anyone drugs. Don't be silly. I did lose some cocaine in Jesus's jacket, and I did find (laughs) his money in mine, though. But I would (laughs) never sell drugs. Early 2003, the head of the Kenyan military is ordered to investigate and report on missing military equipment. It is revealed that a small group of senior army officers supplied the Mungiki with military equipment and logistics and support chiefly military vehicles. So these guys are getting help from the past military or the past regime that got kicked out and they were getting, you know, like fucking ATVs and tanks, not tanks as much as but but like the fucking Humvee, the old Humvees with the machine guns on top. Oh, yeah. So like. the halo truck yeah yeah they're getting (laughs) halo trucks exactly it's gta style now these guys are getting real mad the new guys in february 2003 an effort to curb the mungiki leads to two days of street violence two police officers are killed and more than 70 gang members are arrested with an unknown number left dead also we're going to come back and go into these things a little bit more specific i should have probably put them after but it's gonna be fine we'll still get it In June 2007, in an effort to solidify their position in the face of increased police pressure, the Mungiki embark on a terror campaign against independent business owners and former Mangiki members. Over 100 people are killed with machetes just in June. The violence continues until police and military forces intervene. Jesus, question I got to ask here. Would there be a worse way to die than a fucking machete?
1: Uh, it goes without saying that would be a hard no. Like that's hard to be just uh, it, 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 It's like a shark ch-
0: attack on land.
1: It, it, you're just being chopped
0: away. And just
1: like hard chops. I mean, the hard chops is just not good, man. Yeah,
0: and it's never like if you ever ch- use a machete to do yard work, it's never like you cut everything down on one swing. It's like you're like, hack. You gotta, hack, yeah, you
1: gotta hack. keep hacking at it. Yeah, I, I, I know my way around a, a machete. Working, you know mowing lawns with my dad and we would chop down like a like when we were clean up trees mm-hmm. or stuff like that or like um, yeah we would have to clean out like this like patch of land or whatever and yeah that's that that's tough that's tough and people out there just chopping at people
0: come on man so in November 2007, seven, Oscar Kingara, founder of the Oscar Legal Aid Foundation, an organization focused on civil rights and police violence, releases an investigative report highlighting anti-Mingunki operations by the police. So this is what I was saying when... Earlier, it, right? Yeah. Earlier, where they're switching now. It went from like, these Mungiki are, you know, kind of like psychos, <laughs> but it's but now the police are switching to where it's like, you know, kind of like... A, what Would America- you say
1: the police is in their in their pocketbooks? Like-
0: no, no, no. The police are, go- are fucking with the Mungiki. Oh, they're fucking with them, so yeah. they're
1: not on their payroll. No, no, no. Oh, the, Mung- okay.
0: the guys that the Mungiki used to have in power that were helping them out, those guys are got out. New people come in. It's I kind of put this as the Mungiki are like Islamic people at Guantanamo Bay. You know? Mm. Like, like they were put in this area, and then we... Whether or not they might have been doing bad shit and planning to do bad shit, we also like severely fucked them up and did crazy stuff to them. And then this, this guy's Legal Aid Foundation report is going to show a lot of wild shit that these cops were doing to these guys. December 27, 2007. Mawai Kibaaki is reelected in election widely seen as fraudulent. Pro- protests rapidly devolve into ethnic violence against the Kikiyu. So the Kikiyu are the guys that the Mungiki are protecting and stuff. From the Masai. In January 1st, 2008, election violence reaches its peak after a church filled of kikuyu are burned alive. Oh, my God. Negotiations commence for the forming of a new government. 2007 was a rough fucking year for Kenya. So they go from police dying, 100 gang members dying, um, protests, 100, what is it, a whole church full of kikuyu are burned alive.
1: Ugh, that's a cool way to go. You talking about if there's a the worse way to die than a machine is like how about somebody who has a, a wholehearted faith and they're doing the right thing, right? You know, I'm, yes. I'm 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 all for anyone who pursues a religion for the betterment of themselves. So they go to church, right? That's a good thing to do. You're praying and they burn you there? Yeah.
0: Cuz then it's attacking your physical and spiritual beliefs because it's like you're praying to a guy and you're like save me and my friends and my family and while you're getting burned alive i mean any of this shit a lot of these things i feel like if i'm in an organization you know maybe i'm a criminal i don't mind that being a little dirty but once you go into the thing of like either you know the white supremacist going into a church and shooting them up or cartels blowing up a church or these guys it's like once you start getting the church thing how do you justify that
1: yeah, there's, yeah, I guess the moral compass is, is very skewed at that point. Yeah, And there is
0: no, essentially, rules, no. right? There's no coming back. You're just yeah. a fucking hellscape of a human being. Lost soul. All right, we're coming to an end on this one. We're going to get to... Overview after the ban 2002 to 2008. So we only got one more section left. In 2002, the first free elections were held in Kenya's history, with the result that the Kenyan African National Union, the KANU, was finally removed from office. Those were the guys that were helping the Mungiki. Almost immediately, a ban on the Mungiki was issued by the new government, See, I was trying to say, that's why it's kind of a little confusing in the beginning. Yeah, This is where we cleared up. As well as an investigation into the loan of the military automobiles. For the first time, the Mungiki became a real concern at a national level and not just a concern for local authorities. Gradually, resistance to the Mungiki grew, both on the part of local organizations representing communities dominated by the Mungiki racketeering operations, but also on the part of police and security forces attempting to enforce the ban. Mm. So they're banning these guys. Oh, man. So that's why the police are attacking them like fucking like Bloods and Crips or like, you know, Nortenios and Serenos. It's like if you see these guys, it's fucking on. Mm. A pattern of attacks and reprisal began with the first instances of police assassinations and kidnappings, as well as extreme violence in Kenya's streets related to the Mugiki. They control the fucking poor people. They're going to go buck wild in there. Though the ban was ineffective in destroying the Mangiki, it was enough to limit the control of the organization on its previous monopolies. Three, throughout 2007, in an effort to regain control of the taxi business as well as influence that year's national elections, the Mungiki embarked on a campaign marked by what would become to known as the Mungiki's new hallmark trade of attacking people, which is beheadings. Yeah. Oh. These guys get real psycho here, and we're going to go a little depth into it later. The death of a 12-year-old boy who was part of a child sacrifice ritual and the murder of two Americans brought further attention to the group, as did several massacres and street battles fought during the election season. The 2007 election, marred by violence and insecurity, insecurity due to political infighting saw the peak of attention towards the Mungiki, who were widely credited for exacerbating the political violence of 2007 that saw more than a 1,000 people killed and over 600,000 displaced from their homes. Wow. Though banned, the Mangiki reached something of a peak of their influence with members being consulted by the government as local defense during the riots of 2007. Can I, just, can I say this? Huh. You read really well while
1: drinking. Oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm I'm impressed. You've been killing
0: beers and just reading perfectly. You started once. Yeah. I'm like, oh, man. Well, you know what it is, man? I feel in comedy for me, too. If I can get two beers into me, two and a half beers into me, two beers in a shot, that's my. That's your nice. I'm smooth. working. It. OK, I'm working at that. I'm working. I'm not in my head. I'm not anything things are smooth i'm not i'm not I can even slur when I'm fucking talking like normal English you know what i'm I mean?
1: I'm like three quarters of a way through a beer, and I'm like oh man i I'm just like, ooh.
0: it's hard yeah. to even read right yeah reading drunk, yeah, I got my glasses on I can't really see that word <laughs> all right, we're at the last part before we get into some deep death or oh. de- de- well death too, but deep uh. In depth uh, of what this is a part of the episode where we hit that.
1: Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> doo, doo. <laughs>
0: and just see these guys. Uh, All right. March 5th, 2009. Due to their prominence in the Kikuyu communing, meetings are allegedly held with the Mungiki about post election security. The government is accused of giving over some security authority to the gangs in response to anti Kikuyu violence. So, like I said, or like, you know, this is a little confusing, but so these guys. Became in power because they were trying to protect their community of the Kikuyu against the Masai and the other guys because they're only 17% of the population. Mm-hmm. So they do need to exist. Right. Because of the hate that's happening to them. But March 5th, 2009, that Oscar Kingara is now assassinated in Nairobi, the guy who made the uh, papers. Mm-hmm. of how these guys are getting fucked up by cops is assassinated. We'll learn how he's assassinated. And what happens is this guy's shit doesn't even get uh, released. It gets released via WikiLeaks. And then people... His
1: assassination? His...
0: What the paper he wrote? Okay. Remember how I was talking about, like, these guys have, like, people that do these in-depth research things and it kind of... Yeah, kinda, in the beginning? And, and, it, and, and, mm-hmm. it, and it really changes how the world is seen and all this stuff, like, or their world is seen. This guy created... Did this in-depth thing of, like, hey, these guys are psychopaths. I mean, he was kind of on the McGeeky side, but he's like, these guys are crazy, but what the police are doing them is, you know, swiping them up off the streets, beating, torturing, cutting off their limbs, mm. doing crazy shit. Now, he's killed, like, two years later in Nairobi at the University of Nairobi because he's a fucking professor there. He pub- his published and unpublished reports circulate widely on WikiLeaks. The killers are not found, but investigations cast suspicion on police tactical units. And we say tactile units when we read about this later... You'll know why. Essentially it was like a fucking SWAT hit. These guys driving with his assistant in front of the uh campus. We're on the fucking campus right now, ASU. Yeah. Truck pulls in front of him, the guy slams on his brake, tries to back up, truck pulls behind him, truck pulls to the side, opens the thing, two guys in automatic pistols. No way. They all pull away. That's like a scene out of a movie. Yeah. And that's what they did, these guys. Oh man. October of two thousand nine. Oh, actually, why is that? That's messed up. Uh, March should have gone later. October 2009, senior Mungiki leader Mayana Nzinga is acquitted of murder. Days later, his spokesman is shot and killed. So Mm. these police are tightening their their grips. Yeah, they're tightening their grips on these guys. November 2009, senior members of the Kenyan National Youth League, the youth wing of the Mungiki, are shot in Nairobi. Mm. Right here, overview, make that what we just talked about, a little more digestible for you. 2008 to the present. In the aftermath of the 2000 elections, with major reforms to both the executive and judicial branches of the Kenyan government, the security forces and police embark in an expansion, expansive campaign to purge the banned Mungiki cult from public life. Mm. So, I mean, you know, I mean, I feel like if they... St- if you don't do child sacrifices, you might still be able to be a religion. <laughs> but once your child sacrifices is coming in there, you get to cult real fast. What well, begins as raids by elite flying squads of Kenyan police escalated into assassinations, kidnappings, and torture of confirmed and suspected Mungiki members and their associates. Due to the ethnic nature of the Mungiki as the Kikuyu organization, there is also intense and Intra-ethnic violence in members of the organization being attacked by those whom they taxed and extorted. So now everyone's mad at them. So now these guys are getting less and less more people. The people that they're making charge for the bathroom, the taxi guys that they were charging, are now starting to attack back at them.
1: Mm.
0: Police violence peak in 2008 and 2009 when thousands of Mungiki members are being shot, tortured, or simply disappear while in police custody. Whoa. Thousands. Whoa, while wow, in custody. Just in custody. So just getting scooped up and getting disappeared. Thousands in mm. in two years. So that's like four or five a day. Investigations into the security forces have led to the, the accusations that the police not only target the Mungiki, but journalists and civil rights representatives that investigate extrajudicial activities. Like the guy who made that paper. Through the Kenyan government has come under intense scrutiny for these activities. The Mungiki have been further driven underground where their secretive practices are even less in the public eyes. With a prescription against revealing Mangeki secrets or even leaving the organization, member ma- many, many members have fled Kenya both to escape the police as well as their Mangeki brethren. So now we're gonna go into some of their crazy cases that we talked about you know 2007 okay. um, the local vigilantes we got about four of these and then we're done. Nice. This is this is crazy. I gotta
1: say, like, this is, this has just been heightening. It's like, at every stop of the way, you're like, this is bad, Then it gets <laughs> more bad. It's like,
0: when does it stop? You know what's and it's as bad as they get, but it's it starts when someone comes into your fucking country and destabilizes the government and tries to take over and take money off your shit, and then when they leave abruptly. You have nothing to do. It's like it's I'll let you go in one second and say something, so keep it in your mind. But it's a lot like when you see when you had that bad kid in school who who dealt drugs and beat up kids. You're like, what happened to you? Then you go home and his whole house is destabilized, his parents aren't there, he has to live on his own. It's hard to go right from there when you don't know what's wrong.
1: Yeah. It just made me think of like the difference between Western and Eastern medicine is like eastern medicine is is encouraged that you take this precaution of like healthy living and you eat healthy and you do this kind of thing Mm. where western medicine is like one thing goes bad you do this to protect that or get rid of this and then that springs into existence another element or another problem and then you bring this to take care of that and brings another thing so it's like
0: that's gnarly. And yeah, that where does it end? It's exactly it, what they did, right? Something went bad so then they the the Kikuyu, the guys who are a small percentage, 17% percentage of Kenya. The they're medicine, getting a, they're right? yeah, the medicine is the Mangiki. They're like the Kikuyu are getting killed and raped and whatever, so they're like we'll create our own private military to help protect us. And then they keep the, then they come into that, but then they take over the taxis.
1: And in theory that's supposed to work, right? Yes. It's like this is going to work, but you fail to look. You fail to have the forward thinking to be like, what other problems could come from this, and it just doesn't end until it's not, until it's not a problem no more, and everything has been essentially eradicated.
0: And then these—that's what these guys do. They go, okay, we're gonna eradicate these fucking Mangiki. One, because we're kind of racist against the Kikuya, Two, because the Mangiki have been going buck fucking wild for twenty years and doing wild shit and charging us for pooping and not letting me leave my city. And then it goes ruckus so we did the don't they
1: still technically charge to go to the restroom
0: there probably no no here
1: in, in in the US you go to like a Burger King you got to put a quarter in the thing and then turn the knob
0: yeah and where do you don't you don't you don't you don't do that at a In-N-Out you, you don't, don't do that at a Carl's Jr. somewhere you do that at a Burger King in the middle of the fucking hood no.
1: yeah that's that's so true like you, they don't charge for that in a quote-unquote nice neighborhood they do that you know it's like
0: i mean that also could be because like heroin addicts are going in there and yeah. blood all over i do i did was in san francisco for a little while in downtown la and you're like, i thought you were about to say i did do heroin i've <laughs> <I> never <laughs> like, did it whoa not yet still got not time yet. <laughs> you're still young <laughs> so we're gonna do a quick overview of the 2008 to the present and then we're gonna get into some of their crimes okay and the crimes get a little more juicy ooh crackdown grab a beer guys grab go, grab, go, grab me one too in the fridge Okay, so we're going to go into the Mangeiki attacks against windmen, the social aspects of the Mungiki, 2004, I mean, October of 2000, the 24th. Though a criminal enterprise, the Mungiki has been compared to the Costa Nostra, the Mexican mafia, and the Yakuza, not only for their criminal act- activity, but also to the deep social and cultural aspects of the organization. Wow, what a great sentence right there. Because you talk about Italians, they relate heavily to the Costa Nostra. You're Mexican, maybe you might know some people in the Mexican mafia. They have probably a hold over a lot of things in maybe Mexican neighborhoods, the Yakuza in Japan, or in the culture. Like these things are in the culture of places. Though they were founded in the late 1980s or the early 90s, by 2000, they had boasted thousands of members and advocated for radical changes in Kenyan society. As self appointed heirs to the Mau Mau, the Mangiki claimed a violent anti capitalist and anti Western view of the world, advocating for Kenya to be remade as a more traditional society. Over the weekend of October 20th to the 22nd, 2000, the Mangiki engaged in a rampage of attacks against women, one of their first high-profile pro- high crimes that publicly showed them to mobilize against their perceived cultural and societal enemies. Mm. Prior to being banned in 2002, the Mungiki were free to associate with people during a... So that, that's that's also another thing. When they got banned, so the police started eradicating them, and they also weren't allowed to hang out with each other. You know, kind of like gangs in LA or gangs in America. If you have like a, what is it? If you get gang affiliated or whether you're not allowed to gather with like another guy More who's than gang- three Yeah, people. more than three people. So. Yeah. During a gathering in the town of Cayole, an anti-Western demonstration spiraled out of control. Overpowering police that had been assigned to watch their public demonstration, the Mangeekie attacked local women, stripping them naked and beating them. In the mon- most notorious cases, women wearing trousers, pants, which are traditionally Western, were stripped naked and then whipped for hours. Ostensibly, this was due to prescriptions against women wearing clothing and what was the first of many of the women attacked were assaulted by actual female members of the organization. So it was like Mm. women were doing it. By the time that the riot was brought under control, they had targeted other Western groups such as Freemasons and churches. The public nature of these attacks and its explicit targeting of Western culture helped bring the Mungiki to the public sphere, but also served as a turning point against the Mungiki. Before this, they were kind of like, you know, guys, I just wanted to restore, get rid of Westerners, get rid of this shit that's gone into their culture. But now they took a thing of they went fucking crazy with it. Well, it did not affect their standing as a criminal organization. They were seen less as traditionalists and nationalists, what I was saying, and more as extremists, isolating themselves from a wider public, more than their campaign of bus taxing and hijacking in the years since their founding. So this was the one where they, that one they kind of lost any support. Central Providence massacre, turning point against the Mungiki, December 2007. So this was that.
1: This is a catalyst right here. Yeah, this
0: this is the one that everything turns, and this is in that two thousand seven year that we talked about that was a uh, fucked up. What were you doing in two thousand seven? I graduated high school, oh wow, you were, I... what, you were what you're in college?
1: yeah, I was in college. I graduated o four yeah,
0: so it was a good year for me. I had a great year two thousand seven actually not <laughs> I can't say the same for the people of Kenya. Though the group was banned in 2002 following the death of the political allies in the Kenyan National Union, the KANU, the immediate police response was, though often violent, rather limited. A full-fledged crackdown had not occurred. But in the wake of the violence of 2007, the Mungiki became targets of police violence. So, like we were saying before, you know, that guy published this paper that these guys are getting targeted. but The professor we're, guy? The professor guy. Well, we're going to learn why they were being fucking targeted, because they went psycho. Mm -hmm. Throughout the year of 2007, the Mangiki attempt to regain their prominent role in Kenyan society by influence the outcome of 2007, an attempt to overturn the 2002 election that had banned them. Throughout the spring and summer, a wave of beheadings occurred against their political enemies, and beheadings became a hallmark of the group. It's not a thing you normally want of a hallmark of a group. You normally want Christmas movies, maybe chocolates, but nice (laughs) things. I wish the Hallmark Network had a lot more movies with beheadings in them. In July of 2007, a 12-year-old boy was beheaded in what was described as a ritual killing, a child sacrifice, tied to the McGeekees' interpretation oh of both Islam and traditional African folk religion.
1: why they do that? They just, uh, that was just a thing?
0: I don't know, I mean, maybe drugs are involved, I don't know, you know, like I tried what to find out. What like,
1: like, what, yeah, it's like, what kind of headspace are you in where you're like, this chopping is good? a child's head off.
0: Jesus, and man. people are like, yeah, fucking yeah, chop that kid's head off. Not cool, bro. In September, when two Americans were killed, the Mungiki reached an American audience. You don't want to do that. With more details of their mystery religion was made public, including allegations of cannibalism. They started eating people at this time, too. On December 8th, men were beheaded publicly, and then their bodies and heads were impaled on spikes. The notary of the Mungiki reached its highest point. In the chaos of the 2007 elections held later that mo- month, both the police and the Magiki barked in a campaign of violence. While the Magiki failed to influence the elections and returned largely to their efforts to control the taxi business, extra judicial police efforts and local vigilanteism began to push the Magiki out of the mainstream and drive them underground. In 2008, it would be the police that would be accused of the worst violence as they attempt to eradicate the band Magiki. So, also. This is, you know, you called it, this is the turning point, local vigilanteism. So now everyone's mad. You got guys on the street that are like. Everyone's going to do their part to restore peace. And it's like, that's going to clash. It's exactly what happened when the Kenyans came up and fought the fucking British out. You mm-hmm. know? And it showed, not a backbone to say that if, when you don't do this a backbone, but to show that you're willing to risk everything. Yeah. And that's how far they got pushed. That just normal people had to push back. And these guys now aren't seen as nationalist guys that are, want us to bring back. They're seen as criminals, cannibalists, and fucking child murderers. Mm. The Mathira Massacre. The Mungiki retaliate against local vigilantes. April 21st, 2009. One day after 420. The Kiri Ingaari, Kiri Ngari, I think I actually said that pretty good, district in the heart of the country and the site of Mount Kenya is atypical of Kenya. Rich in natural resources, beauty, heavily reliant on agricultural and riven by ethnic and political divisions. Though the majority of the people live in rural areas and are engaged in agriculture, like much of Kenya, regions where towns and rural environments meet are often the center of ethnical, ethnic and political violence. In the early weeks of 2009, Kirangara district saw an uptick in random violence perpetrated by members of the Mangiki. Several Mungiki members had been killed in unknown circumstances, with the Mangiki in turn attacking the suspected vigilantes that attacked them. With control of the taxis and bus business, a central platform of Mangiki criminal activity, it was natural that they would strike at rival cabbies and bus services. So think about
1: this. It's like if they're controlling the logistics of the town that they're controlling, they basically have control of the whole place. They can't have can't anyone. Move. Logistically, no one's moving. They know exactly where everyone is, and they, yeah. Yeah, like, I, I kept saying the
0: taxi thing over and over again, but the whole time it was taxis and buses.
1: Yeah, so, it, like, essentially, just, yeah, the logistics of a town. Like, think of the the metro system of any big city. If they control that, no one's moving around. Anyone, like, and, and who's, who's moving around? It's people with not a lot of resources. Because if you have resources,
0: you would have your own transportation, which in these times they don't Not have it. happening. Yeah, this I mean this is fucking 10 years ago. They don't have that. And also it's like your blood. Imagine your blood standing still. A ta- a place needs everyone to move around and do all this stuff. And what's the thing that controls your blood? Your heart. Which so if- philosophically if we go into like a Bruce Lee quote is
1: it's like I remember him talking about like um like water needs to move, mm-hmm. right? In order for it to be like alive. The moment water stops moving, what happens to it? It rots. So in a city when you have people not moving around or going about you know freely it's like the society tends to kind of go in a downward spiral
0: excellent that was an excellent point by mid-april the shadow government of the Mangiki, which collected extortion money and racketeering operations was being resisted by locals who refused to pay taxes vigilante mobs were turned against the Mangiki, and openly fought them in the streets with machetes and stones during a funeral for one of their members, a group of the McGee were confronted by local hostels. In what was later described as an ambush, other McGee members crept through their bushes around the rival towns and people and attacked them with axes, machetes, and rocks. The fighting lasts for several hours, after which 27 people were left dead. 37 were later arrested, but they released for lack of evidence. Why? Because they killed the whole fucking town. So I who's going to say that these guys did anything wrong? It's not like they have cameras up. Yeah. It was reported that a lot of the police and local enforcement were bribed. As of yet, no one had been prosecuted. Actually, you know what? I said that wrong. That was the locals that killed a bunch of McGeeke. You
1: said hostile, hostile locals.
0: Yeah. So the hostile locals went to the funeral, surrounded the McGeeke, and killed 27 of them. But since the police hated the McGeeke, and the law enforcement hated the McGeeke, all 37 got off. Sure. Though hardly the worst violence per Hmm. Because when you
1: said hostels, for a second, my my um, after one beer brain thought
0: you meant like hostels, like people were traveling. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bunch of French kids. Yeah, uh, I
1: was like, oh, they're they're getting involved.
0: So that was a murder thing. We got one more, and then we're done here. And this is the one at the oh assassination thing. Brace yourself, you guys. This, take, yeah.
1: take a smoke break or a potty <laughs> break. It's
0: about to go down Yeah, this is the guy this is the last one this is the uh the oscar kingara the guy who tried to stick up for the mungiki Uh oh yeah the upending of the 50-year one-party regime in 2002 was quickly followed by a widespread coordination response against the mungiki who had supported the ousted kenyan african national union party apart from being banned widespread latitude was given to the police to pursue the mungiki we talked about that talked about that. Okay, here we go. Last part. Oscar Kingara, a middle class Kenyan lawyer, was employed in his family's industrial enterprises in Nairobi, but utilized his free time and money to create the Oscar Legal Aid Foundation. Among their chief purposes was the investigation of the police, widely seen as operating a vigilante campaign against the Mungiki. With cooperation from Wikilinks, he documented more more than 8,000 cases of police murder and torture. 8,000? 8,000. Thousand and that's that what we said 2007 to 2009
1: so he essentially created a like a his own like watchdog kind of situation
0: yeah, Okay. and uh, The investigation would culminate in the paper uh, called the cry of blood published locally and internationally mainly through WikiLeaks because the local guys uh, Cry of blood that's the name of the newspaper you guys <laughs> that's, the, that's the heading you know, it's gonna start pretty good after that. Oof. The sex success of the paper brought new light to on the police campaign against the Mungiki, the new prominence of Kingara and his staff. Following the report, the United Nations appointed a special representative on the subject of extrajudicial police killings, which urged the investigation of and firing of senior members of the Ministry of Justice. Right. But guess what? That doesn't happen. On March 5th, 2009, Kingara and his aide, Paul Oualau, John Paul Oulu. Oulu were parked in traffic in front of the University of Nairobi where they had been working on papers to be presented to the parliament on the matter of police assassinations and disappearances. A van cut in front of them with a second one blocking the rear. Two men left the van, approached their car, firing semi-automatic pistols into both women or windows. The two men wearing suits, they also stole a nearby guy who saw them and they killed just as random.
1: Well, Yeah, that's like a Hollywood movie mm-hmm. scene right there. Ooh. So this is the interesting part, and
0: to show uh, how much these Mongeeki are hated and how much the government didn't like them, the killings were nationally, internationally blamed on the police services. International aid in the investigation in the murders, including the intervention of the FBI, was denied by the government, who have yet to investigate the murders or even care. The murder of Kingar remains one of the most infamous episodes in the police campaign against the Mangiki. Wow. So, so the yeah, the powers to be say FBI chill. Yeah, we don't give a fuck. Wow, it's like it's like if your parent, like someone was like, "Hey, your your kid has been going around beating up all my kids," and you are like, "Yeah, I don't care. Doesn't matter."
1: What do you do at that point? There is nothing you can do. That's like you know the old saying of like throwing ice cubes at the devil. Is like, what what can
0: you possibly affect in this situation? I mean, yeah, you are not gonna get in trouble. The guys who wanted these police to kill these guys are not gonna then get them in trouble because they have no one to get them in trouble. And it started with it started from a good place of these guys want to be nationalists it went to them being crazy then the police started in a good place you know just like the medicine thing of wanting to control these guys have been crazy it starts in a good place but
1: focus is lost and sometimes there's things that you don't think through and then that becomes a bigger problem and you know now you're chasing the fires and you know you can't put them all out at one time
0: well thanks for doing the podcast buddy dude thank you for having me this is so gnarly thank you so much that was fun uh make sure you guys uh Keep listening. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'll do all the credits and all the other cool stuff. You have anything you want to say? No. Keep listening. This is great. I learned a lot. This is uh,
1: something I wouldn't have researched on my own. So thank you for inviting me. This was uh, really fun. And and um, we're gonna yeah. be
0: together in San Diego in the next week or two.
1: Yes. So San Diego,
0: June, right? June.
1: First week of June. Check us out. We're gonna be down
0: there, bringing the funnies. Check that out if you guys like it. Thanks for checking us out. I'll do the little intro later. Bye.